Let us go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Holy Father, once again we come before you and <clears throat> have a great anticipation of seeing our blessed Savior even as we sang face to face of the multipli <clears throat> multiplied <clears throat> thousands and millions <clears throat> that are redeemed we wonder how that each one of us could always see him in his human body as we will be in our glorified body all at the same time. <clears throat> we don't know that we will. We don't know that we will not. For as we have said earlier, quoting thy word, we do not know what we shall be. But we know that we shall see him as he is. And thank you, our God, that it fills our hearts and souls in thinking about a resurrected Lord and how that He intercedes for us. We don't know what he looks like, and yet we know that he is altogether lovely. I pray that you would help us and strengthen us as we continue to live out our lives upon this earth. And that we might do it in such a way that it would bring honor and glory unto you and thy darling Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, we pray that you would sanctify thy word unto our hearts as we <clears throat> endeavor to study it somewhat. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, we've been looking at uh, the book of Galatians, and we're in the third chapter. We left off last Lord's Day. We were looking somewhat into verse 19, where it states, Wherefore then servest the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Paul had gone to great length and he continues to do so in this throughout this epistle that the law has no place in our justification. 
And since it has no place, then the question is asked, then why give it? Why should it be given to us? And we want to look this morning somewhat at the fact that even though the law is not given for our justification, the law is still good. It had a purpose, and it still has a purpose, and which we will look at somewhat as we go forth. But notice in the context of this verse, as well as the whole context of the epistle, when we talked about the law of faith and the law of works from Romans uh, 3.27 and other places, you'll notice here that it talks about the law was added until the seed should come. In other words, the law was added until this New Testament economy should come. And we'll see down in uh, later on uh, in uh, verse 23, it talks about before faith came. Well, faith was in the Old Testament, but it's talking about this economy of faith or the New Covenant or the New Testament. And so we see that it had its place in the Old Testament from, from that standpoint, but the law was given... And the main purpose of the law is to show us that we need a Savior. But at the same time, I want to make this clear. Uh, this, uh, clear. Sometimes you hear people say that you have to preach the law and get people lost in order to get them saved. Well, if that's the case, what about Abraham? Abraham was justified and he received that justification before the law was ever given. So the law is not to be given in order to get a person into a condition in order for him to accept uh, the salvation that God has ordained. But the law was given, and it was given for a purpose, and it was given... And ordained by angels. Now can you think about that? When Moses was there at Mount Sinai. We know that God spoke. And God spoke to Moses. God wrote the Ten Commandments. As well as, the, as, well as giving Moses the other laws that Israel were to be governed by. But angels were present. Angels were present as well. You see that? And I'll give you the passages. We won't turn to those. But in Acts chapter 7 and verse 38. Acts chapter 7 and verse 53. Deuteronomy 33.2. Hebrews 2.2 talks about that. But have you thought about, and you should as much as we have pointed it out from time to time, we don't see them, but angels are present today. Angels are here. Angels are here. When the congregation of the Lord meets, angels are here. That's one of the reasons you ladies wear your head coverings, and rightly so. 
You're teaching angels. That's astounding, isn't it? You're teaching angels. And it, it shows angels' authority. And uh, I would be hesitant to say that if the Scriptures didn't say it. We're not going to turn to all of those passages. But angels are present. Angels are present. You don't feel them. You don't see them. You can't touch them. But they're present. They're present. And so, uh, angels were present when the law was given and it was ordained by angels in there at Mount Sinai. And it was given into the hands of a mediator. And the mediator there was Moses. But we have a mediator. And who is our mediator? The Lord Jesus Christ. There's one mediator between God and man, and that's man Christ Jesus. The Pope's not a mediator. Priests and bishops are not mediators. I can't be your mediator. You can't be my mediator. We can intercede for each other and uh, offer uh, uh, prayers of supplications for each other, but we can't mediate for each other. We can't even mediate for ourselves. There's one mediator, the man Christ Jesus, which we will look at a little bit more. But the law was and is beneficial. We are no longer under the ceremonial law. We're not even under the civil law of Israel. The, the moral law is still, uh, uh, still in effect, but we're not under that for justification. And we desire to keep the moral law because we love the Lord. But let's look and see and show in case there's somebody out there in the internet that still uh, might not know this. Look in Romans chapter 7. Here we're going to see that the law is not only beneficial, but it's good. We'll start at verse 7, Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin taken occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once. <clears throat> but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taken occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it slew me. Notice, it was sin that slew him. It wasn't the law that slew him. The sin in us is what the problem is. Verse 12, Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. 
but sin that it might appear sin working death uh, in me by that which is good that the sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. So the problem is with us, the problem is not with the law, even though the law cannot justify. The law cannot give righteousness. The law only condemns us. But the problem, the reason that it does is because we're sinners. And we need to keep that in mind at all times. Paul said also in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8, he said, We know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. The law is good if a man use it lawfully. And there is a, a, a part in that. Luther said of this, For unless the gospel be plainly discerned from the law, the true Christian doctrine cannot be kept sound and uncorrupt. So we must make a distinction. Though we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, we must make the distinction. And as we said before, that as we find here in Galatians, he goes on to say that uh, that we have a uh, now uh, that it was in the hands of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. And we know that from First Timothy two that Christ is our mediator. All too often, if we're if we don't keep this before us, we'll get to thinking. That I must do something for God to hear my prayers. Sometimes we get to thinking that, well, things are everything's going wrong today, and I just wonder what all why everything's going so wrong, and uh, I need to. What is it that I need to do that God might hear my prayers and things not be so bad? Now you may not be troubled like that, but I'm troubled from time to time. And I, not only, I don't think the devil stirs me up so much as my own wicked heart stirs me up. But the thing about it, we have a mediator. Christ Jesus. And as you've heard me quote many times, uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, when it talks about that we have a priest that is touched with the feelings of our infirmities, and that we are, can go to God that we might tain, obtain mercy and grace and help in time of need. And when we are thinking wrongfully, that's when we need to be praying that much more. That God would help us and strengthen us and know that we do have a mediator. He's not just a mediator part-time. He's not just a mediator when you do good. He's not just a mediator when you do bad. He's a mediator at all times. We have a mediator. 
Christ Jesus the Lord. You say, well, I don't know whether He's my mediator or not. Well, are you saved? Are you trusting in Christ? What is it that you're trusting in? Are you trusting in your good works? Are you trusting in your faithfulness and uh, doing everything right? The only thing you can trust in is the finished work of Christ. And the scripture says that if you're trusting in Christ and in Christ alone, you're his and you have a mediator. You say, well, it doesn't feel like it sometimes. Just the fact that just as certain as you don't feel angels here today and you don't see angels here today. The scripture tells us that angels are here. You accept that by faith. And just as you don't feel like you have a mediator, you have to accept that by faith too. You can't go by your feelings. You have to go by the Word of God. This is this whole principle of faith throughout the Scriptures. Our righteousness is the person and work of Christ and we're trusting in that and in that alone. And we do have a mediator. The Lord Jesus Christ is our mediator. Now, as he says here, later on in verse 21, is the law against the promises of God? Since the law doesn't bring the promises of God, is the law against it? He says, God forbid. God forbid. We saw previously in reading in Romans and in First Timothy that the law is good. The law is spiritual. The law is holy. The law is just. So we see that uh, the law is not against the promises of God. And there is no law. Not only the Old Testament ceremonial law. The Old Testament civil law. Nor the Ten Commandments. Or any other law that you can come up with. There is no law that can give life. There is no law that can justify. There is no law that can impute righteousness unto you. Many teach. The, many teach that uh, in order for. An individual to have eternal life, he must do something. And they quote John 3.16. That if you, if you will believe, then God will give you life. Well, as I pointed out many times, John 3.16 doesn't even teach that. John 3.16 says that if you are a believer, you have life. Not you will have life, but you have life. You have eternal life. Are you a believer? You have eternal life. You have eternal life. There are others that teach that baptism, the Lord's Supper, and various sacraments and things, that they are essential or they help in giving eternal life. And they use these and call these means of grace. 
But John 3, 8 says that the new birth is by the Holy Spirit. It does not say that the Holy Spirit is a means of grace. Holy Spirit gives life. The Holy Spirit gives life. The reason that you love God and the reason that you love even His law and the reason that you uh, love the Lord Jesus Christ is because God has quickened you by His Holy Spirit. Salvation is by grace, not by the means of grace. And grace is the gift of God. And therefore, again, we say that there's no law. There's no law that'll give life. You can't uh, do enough good works to get life. You can't do enough good works to be justified. Because all of your righteousnesses, as the prophet said, all of your righteousnesses are as a filthy garment in his sight. All of your good things, the things that you do that are good, being in the house of God today, Sitting in the house of God, worshiping together. That's a good thing. If I'm preaching the truth of the gospel, that's a good thing. But in the sight of God for righteousness, it's filthy. It's filthy. You know why? Because I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Everything that I do is tainted with sin. Everything that you do is tainted with sin. Someday, beloved, we're going to be resurrected like the Lord Jesus Christ, and we won't have sin in this body. And we won't. Even, and when we, if if we die before the Lord returns, we won't have sin in our souls. Absent with the body, from the body, present with the Lord. But until then, we have sin. Body, soul, and spirit. Or if you're dichotomous, soul and body. <laughs> Either way, we have sin. We have sin. We like to think that there's something pretty good about us. Really, there's nothing good about us. There's no law. There's nothing about us that we can do. There's nothing about us that we are. There's nothing that will bring about the righteousness of God other than that of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, Meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. Now you can do all of those things as much as you want to, and you won't do it too much. There's no law against them. But the point that we want to make is that faith is a fruit of the Spirit. You must have the Spirit before you can have faith. 
and all of these other graces that are mentioned, I believe are given to every child of grace when he is regenerated by the Holy Spirit. They may not be blossoming forth and they may have to be cultivated by the preaching of the gospel, the reading of the word and, and various other things, but he has them in him. Even Paul said with regarding to love to the Thessalonians, he said, you need not that I write unto you to love one another because you're taught of God to do that. God teaches his children. Not just one thing, but many things. But the point we're making here is that in regeneration as the, and I like to use it as many of the old theologians used to say, that in regeneration the habit of faith is given. Or we might say the habit of love or the habit of these other graces that are spoken. In other words, we might say, as I've already alluded to, the germ of faith is put there. And it's cultivated. Some people have an experience like the Apostle Paul and their lives are turned around immediately. Others, like some of us, our lives kind of turned around slowly. But either way, God uses the various means to bring forth the faith. Romans 10 says that faith cometh by hearing. In other words, faith comes forth by hearing. Faith is not given, it's not engendered by hearing, only through God, uh, by the Holy Spirit, as we might say. But the gospel brings life and immortality to light. 1 Timothy 1, verses 10 and 11. Just as that seed is in the ground, hidden in the darkness of the earth, when the sun and the water and the moisture and everything is right, that seed germinates and comes forth to light. And when an individual is born again by the Holy Spirit, under the ministry of the Word, under the reading of the Word, a lot of other things, uh, I don't have any problem with the means of grace in that sense, but uh, when those things are brought forth, I mean, when those things come forth, then it brings that faith to life, to light. Get my words mixed up. And it brings these other things to life. But no law, nothing we can do, can engender life. God gives the life, but we can water the life and we can uh, do many things in, in a way that is beneficial. Not only life cannot be produced by the law, righteousness cannot be produced by us obeying the law. But the law...
I'm looking at the wrong chapter. But the law in verse uh, verse 22. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin. All under sin. This word conclude in the Greek means to shut up. Or to shut together. I want to do a little word study. It's only used four times. Look in Luke chapter 5. It'll help you to see that fuller this verse. Luke 5 and verse 6. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break. The word there is enclosed. Enclosed. In Galatians it said, the scripture hath concluded, it hath enclosed all under sin. Or it has shut together all under sin. Look at Romans chapter 11. Verse 32. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief that He might have mercy upon all. He has shut them up. He has enclosed them. He has shut together. Alright. The next two places are in the Galatians which is the first one there in verse 21. And then verse 23. We're kept under the law. We're shut up. God hath concluded all in unbelief. Verse 22. I've got, I got one of the verses listed here wrong. So the Scriptures abundantly show that we are sinners and that the law only condemns. It does not justify. And if we wanted to take the time, we would read Romans 3 verses 9 through 19. But there are many, many passages that teach that the law condemns. There's a hymn that we sing sometimes, and I think it sums it up pretty much. Uh, called The title is Hail Sovereign Love. It says, Indignant justice stood in view. To Sinai's fiery mount I flew. But justice cried with frowning face, This mountain is no hiding place. 
Ere long a heavenly voice I heard, and mercy's angel form appeared. She led me on with placid pace to Jesus as my hiding place. Now there's one part in that song, in that that's not right too. It said, Mercy's angel, she. All angels in the scriptures are he. All angels in the scriptures are in the masculine gender. Because mercy is feminine in our English, uh, evidently the reason they put it there, but uh, usually when I sing that song, I don't say, sing he, I sing, I mean she, I sing he. <laughs> so, but anyway, but it aptly describes, the more you try to go to the law, the more you try to do in order to be accepted of God, all it does is bring you into bondage. Bring you into bondage. I have never met anyone that was trusting in any kind of law work that was happy in Christ. I've never found anyone that was happy in Christ. They always had a spirit about them. <clears throat> Sometimes, and y'all know that I am 100% totally for modest dress and 100% believe in the head covering, things of that nature. But there's a group of women that you see sometimes that are dressed modestly, and some of them have head covering, some of them don't, but they have a sour spirit about them. They're not happy. Why? Because they're trusting in their righteousness. They're trusting in their righteousness. They can't be happy. They can't be happy. Because they don't know and you can't tell me how much righteousness that you can do for God to accept you. Well, I can tell you how much righteousness you can do for God to accept you. 100%. That's the only way. But you can't because you're born dead in sin. So you've already struck out before you got started. But the promise of faith of Jesus Christ is that principle of faith or the person and work of Christ. And this promise is given to us experimentally when we believe. But it was judicially given to us before the world began. Just to give you one that you should know, 2 Timothy 1 9. 2 Timothy 1 9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. His own purpose and grace. What is it? Which was given us, which was given us. In Christ Jesus before the world began. Given us. It was already given us in Christ Jesus. Judicially before the world began. So this faith of Jesus Christ. 
or being justified by the faith of Christ or justified by faith is talking about the person and work of Christ that was given us in Him before the world began judicially, but it's given to us experimentally or we receive it experimentally by faith when we believe. That's what Abraham received. Now how much did Abraham know of his justification and of Christ from the time he left Ur of the Chaldee until Genesis 15? I do not know. Scripture doesn't tell us. We do know this from John. Abraham uh, Abraham saw the day of Christ. Jesus said that, uh, that Abraham saw the day of Christ and saw Him. How much did he know? How much did he understand? How much did he understand of Christ when he left Ur of the Chaldees? We're not prepared to say because the Scripture doesn't say. I would assume that he didn't know much. Because it was at Genesis 15, some almost 10 years after he left Haran, and we don't know how old he was when he left earth. He might have been 50 when he left earth, for all we know. But he was 75 when he left Haran in Genesis 12. But then in Genesis 15 is when he saw the seed by faith. When he saw the seed by faith. But before faith came, this is the principle that we have that is before this economy of grace came. And then it says here in verse 24, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. That we might be justified by the person and work of Christ. We've, we've uh, emphasize that time and time again. But this word schoolmaster is not what many people think. Many people think that the schoolmaster is the school teacher. But that's not the place. That's not the case here. The word is pedagogy uh, uh, Pidagogos. I'll get it right here in a minute. Pidagogos. And it's really a child leader. He was usually, generally, this Pedagogos was a slave. He was a slave in the family in the wealthy families especially, that had the, had the oversight of the young boy. 
And it was his duty. Well, I'm going to read from uh, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia that was put out by James Orr. Most people don't know, but there were two sets of International Bible Encyclopedias. One by Patrick Fairbairn was six volumes. But James Orr put one out. And But anyway, reading from him, talking about the school, the schoolmaster, the Pedagogos. It was his duty to accompany his charge, that is, this young boy that had not become of age to take over his rightful duties. It was, it was his duty to accompany his charge to and from school. Never to lose sight of him in public. To prevent uh, association with object, objectionable companions. To inculcate moral lessons at every opportunity. He was a familiar figure in the streets. And the face of the Padagogos. Uh, the face of this schoolmaster, and so followed one like a schoolmaster were proverbial expressions. In other words, the, the face of the young boy, uh, the characteristics of him were so embedded by the schoolmaster or the pedagogos, pedagogos, that the young boy looked like his schoolmaster. In other words, it just looked, he just took on his characteristics. And you see children oftentimes doing that with their own parents. And sometimes people will take on characteristics of others. Several years ago, when I was uh, somewhat living part-time in Georgia and living with Elder Hunt. Uh, Brother Charles Walker asked me one time after I've been around Brother Hunt a uh, few weeks or months. Brother Walker said, uh, I was doing a certain expression with my, with my hands while I was preaching. He said, where'd you learn that? So where'd you pick up that? I said, I don't know. I didn't know I was doing it. Well, come to find out, I was picking up some of the hand gestures that Brother Hunt was doing. And I was doing just like him, imitating him and didn't know it. Well, this Pedagogos uh, uh, was so influential with his student, uh, the, the, young, the young master in, in effect, that he, the, master, the child began to take on the characteristics of his quote, uh, schoolmaster. Naturally, the average boy, to the average boy, the payday dogas must have represented the incorporation of everything objectionable. You know, like boys today, they don't want to be, a lot of times they don't want to be uh, corrected all the time. And they think 
Christian schoolmaster, you know, they're kind of objectionable. I remember in high school, the strictest teacher that I had in high school was our English teacher. After I had graduated from high school and college and was teaching in a private school, uh, I was back in my hometown and was at a funeral service and my high school teacher, English teacher, was there. And I went up to her and spoke to her and and said, Ms. Wiles, I said, there's only one complaint that I have against you. She was just a little short lady. And she looked up at me and said, what's that? I said, you weren't strict enough. She opened her mouth, said, you're the only student that ever told me that. Said, you know what it's all about. <laughs> so, but the thing about it is, we don't appreciate oftentimes the instruction as a child that when we come to mature years, we're grateful. And I can say that with regard to my own father in many, many, many ways. But even though this uh, payday gogos was not uh, appreciated by the young student, Paul takes this figure in a paraphrase and he says the law was a pedagogos necessary but irksome to direct us until the time of Christ. I'm still reading from uh, this article in uh, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. The word pedagogos was taken over into Aramaic. Uh, at an early date in Paul's language which is hardly that of a, a mere adult observer suggests that he had personal experience with the institution in other words Paul may have had uh, a, such a schoolmaster for him wealthy and intensely orthodox Jewish parents living in a Gentile city may well have adopted such a precaution for the protection of their children. No English word renders pedagogos adequately. Schoolmaster is quite wrong, but the revised versions, tutor, compared to 1 Corinthians 4.15, is a little better in the modern English. And as you know, when you're translating, sometimes you have trouble finding a word that will fit just exactly. But you get the idea of what this schoolmaster was. He's kind of like a tutor, one that looked over him. He was more than a tutor because schoolmaster is a tutor. So a tutor doesn't really uh, fit either. But he's one that takes on and we might say today and I don't like using it, but it uh, it might apply. Kind of like a physical trainer would be today. One that takes an individual under his wings to develop his uh, discipline in such a way to control his own life in a better way 
that would help him naturally or physically. This word is used three times. It's used here in uh, verses 24 and 25. But it's used also in 1 Corinthians 4.15. Let's look at it there to see if we can help us to understand it a little better. But this is what the law was for. 4.15 Though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, ye have not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Now, I don't, the word instructor there, I don't have time to exegete this verse. But I can tell you this, the Father here is the word that is used, and I've got verses from Genesis all the way down to the New Testament many times where the word Father is used to show that it was nothing more than one that instructs and and teaches uh, in a... Uh, Well, I just went blank. Oh, uh, I think Joseph was called a father to Pharaoh. In other words, he was his prime minister. He did everything that was needed. But anyway, and he taught him the word and many other things. So you see the idea. It's not the idea of gospel regeneration here. It's the idea of instruction and training to me, it goes along with the word for one of the words for bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, child training, child training, child training. But the law was given prior to the New Testament economy to bring the people of God along the way. To prepare them for the coming of Christ. Everything about the law, though it did not instill life, it did not produce righteousness. Man cannot be justified by the law, but it does everything that it can to put the spotlight on Christ. And that we might look to Christ. Look to Christ. Even the ceremonial law with the uh, sacrificing of the animals morning and evening and all the different feast days that was pointing to Christ everything was pointing that without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins and that what they were doing under the law was not sufficient because they had to do it every day every morning every night every Passover every Pentecost Every atonement, year after year after year, 
It did no good. It did no good. It had to be done over and over. But our high priest, he went into heaven and sat down once for all and obtained eternal redemption for us. Obtained eternal redemption for us. Well, we'll stop here. But I hope that helps a little bit to understand and hopefully also to point you more and more and more to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can only say these words, but I pray that you would apply them to the heart and to the souls really of everyone who hears. But in particular, to Thy people. I confess with my own self, too often I know these things in my head more than my heart. And yet, as earlier in our service, from time to time, you bless our cups to tip over a little bit. When we're blessed to behold the richness and to suck out the sweet juice of the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ into our souls. Help us, our God. Strengthen us by your grace and power. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.